Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network. I just want to let you know that our sponsor, Harry Tarantula, is looking for people who do comics in Canada for signings, events, and Q&As. So if you do a comic, they want to hear from you. They're located at 6979 Young Street, and you can give them a call at 647-430-1263. We're looking for people like our past guests, Ramon Perez, Marcus Toe, Kelman Andrasovsky, Ricky Lima, Megan Carter, Hope Nicholson. If you do a comic, they want you. Email them at us at harryt.com or call them again at 647-430-1263 and ask for Leon or Jeremy and tell them Aaron sent you. You're listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hello, fanboys and fangirls. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble on the Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. That's probably where you're listening to this now, or you can find us on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play. This week, we have some very special guests, kind of a departure for us. We usually talk to uh, the comic book luminaries of Toronto. These guys are filmmakers who made a film, a short film, about a comic comic they are uh, the people behind sandman 24-hour diner uh, basically it's you know that issue 24 hours of the sandman series by neil gaiman they made a short film of it we're talking about evan henderson and nicholas brown hello welcome guys thank you it's good yeah, to be thanks. here <laughs> yeah so your film is at the royal on june 25th is it that's right yeah 7 p.m at 7 p.m. That's amazing. Yep. So, and this is a local screening. You guys are from Toronto, right? Pretty close to. I'm from Burlington originally. Okay. And I'm from Guelph. Nice. So, after that one showing that you guys are doing, it's going to go live on the internet the next day? That's right. It's actually going on midnight, uh, so June 26th, even though it's still kind of the 25th for us. Right. We're just uh, we're releasing it online for the world to see, the international audience. Right, and that's midnight Eastern Standard Time, of course, because <laughs> yes. we're in the Eastern Time Zone. <laughs> the, th- the first thing that got me curious is like, I saw your poster first, and, and I'm a huge Neil Gaiman fan. I'm a huge Sandman fan. Sandman and Neil Gaiman get mentioned on this podcast inadvertently. I don't mean to mention it on like every episode. And every time I talk about Sandman or Neil Gaiman with a guest, I think listeners can hear m- the excitement in my voice and the, the vocal levels raised and things like that. So it's, it's a joke among the people that listen to this podcast that, oh no, he's talking talking about Sandman again. So how did you guys get the inspiration to make a film about an issue of Sandman? Well, I think it all kind of started uh, when we first, we graduated film school in 2014, I think around then. And we, uh, we moved into Cabbage Town, Toronto, and we were just kind of sitting around trying to figure out what we wanted to do next. Did you guys meet in film school? Yeah. Oh, school. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, just were like-minded, became friends after first year and 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just liked each other's stuff a lot. <laughs> yeah. We were both we both tried to do a lot of like very ambitious for our uh, limited means at the time. Like we we both made films over the summer that uh, were kind of like where we cut our teeth really and got a chance to direct and produce our own stuff and learned how stressful it was. Yeah, and like actually really try to make a a, a film. Like I, I feel like we both had made things with our friends and stuff, and that's like the best. That's the best learning space, but. Like it, those two, those movies that we made that summer between second and third year were like our, we were actually le- working with a crew and, and learning how to do it basically. Yeah. So what kind of sensibility were these films like sci-fi, like in the um, geek genre type thing? Well, or different? I, I, I directed a film called neighbor, which was a horror thriller. Nice. Uh, it was a, sort of about a guy that lives inside somebody's wall for maybe a couple decades without anyone knowing. And uh, it was very, uh, I almost want to say like a psychedelic horror just because of the way that the editing style kind of came together and the way the the format changed. It all kind of came about in the editing process, but it became a lot weirder right. doing that. But you guys... You guys were into comics before? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Evan actually introduced me to Sandman. That's how I heard about it. Yeah. I actually, um, where I grow up in Burlington, my neighbor is, uh, I don't know if you know his name, uh, Ken Lashley. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Your neighbor is Ken Lashley? Like, how (laughs) close do you live to Ken Lashley? Literally next door to me. (laughs) Really? Yeah. And uh, he's been my neighbor since about three years old. For for people who don't know, Ken Lashley is working on, uh, I think, X-Men Gold right now. He replaced placed Ayad Saif, I forget how to pronounce his name, because he, you know, that was the artist who put the uh, religious uh, anti-Semitic symbols into the first issue and was promptly Mm. fired. So (laughs) Ken Lashley, a Canadian boy, was drafted to take over for him. Ken has also done work on The Flash and, and various other comics for Marvel and DC, so yeah. that's amazing. So he's he's been sort of like a, a good a, one of my first mentors in my life. When I first originally wanted to get into comics, he would show me a lot of stuff. Probably a you wanted to too. get in as an artist. Well, originally when I was really young, that was sort of uh, okay. what I was thinking, and he kind of he kind of pushed me away from that. He sort of said, uh, "Maybe your talents lie somewhere else." Okay. Um, but I actually got to go to San Diego Comic Con with him about a year before I started college. And uh, when I was there, that's when I picked up an issue of Sandman. And I had just, I'd always heard about it. And I picked up uh, the Game of You uh, arc, which was just sort of a random one. But it kind of was a great introduction to the whole series as a whole, because it sort of stands alone on its in its own way. So what year did this happen? The, the um, probably like 20, 2011, 2011, whenever Dance with Dragons came out. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it just it always kind of stuck with me, and I uh, I finished I read that that I started from the very beginning, and Preludes and Nocturnes was where Twenty Four Hours was, and and that issue kind of always stuck out to me as just it was just so much fun and different from what I had read before, and scary obviously. So Preludes and Nocturnes, for those who don't know, is the first book in the Sandman series. It's the first uh, graphic novel, first volume. And uh, this is issue nine? Uh, six. Six, believe, yeah. Okay. So issue six. And Sandman is known for jumping around and playing with genre a lot. Some of them are fantastical, whimsy, fantasy. Uh, some of them are like, you know, Julius Caesar, sort of the Odyssey adventure epics. But 
a lot of them are like straight up psychological horror, particularly in the first arc, like the first uh, volume. There's a lot more horror influence. I think it's like the first or second volume where you have the serial killer convention. Right. That was a classic issue. But this one, I mean, when I read it, I read it the first time a long time ago and I, I read it to catch up for this podcast. I was like, wow, like this is actual straight up horror like people get murdered in this are you guys actually going to dramatize all of that graphic violence and and blood and stuff like that 100 percent, yes we went we went we wanted it to be the most authentic sandman film it could possibly be right um that was really important to us uh because we see a lot of the superhero movies that are coming out mm-hmm. and you know they're they're fantastic and they're really entertaining but no one's no one is doing something the way that sandman is sort of that type of storytelling technique that kind of darkness and maturity uh there's nothing that really compares at the moment uh, so we just wanted to do something that was different, but would still appeal to a comic book audience. Like we were, well, like I was saying when we were in Cabbage Town, we were just we just didn't know what to do next with ourselves. And we kind of wanted to be like, what's what could be the next thing that would uh, that that could make a name for ourselves, but also be something where we'd be allowed to experiment and try something new. Right. And Sandman is sort of the perfect world for that. So. Yeah, because because it does a lot of genre hopping and there's like different things. It's not one thing. It's not a superhero comic. It has elements of superhero comics, but there's so many other genres. So Neil Gaiman was doing things in comics that like nobody had done before, like to that point. And and it's sort of all over the place. It's not quite horror, it's not quite superhero. So yeah, like well, you're saying like, I feel like they it's it's been branded to me before I read it. It was it was like it's a super superhero comic, but you know it's not about the superhero. It's about the people that the superhero interacts with. Right, sort of. exactly. And, and it's it's written much more of like like a a, a biblical epic. And mm-hmm. they're like the stories are parables. They're you know you don't really see the full picture until the very end of it. And then yeah. and at the end, you're just there's all these things that when you read it the second time through, it's like oh holy shit, that's you know that's what was going on here. That's- so so it's like you're saying it has a lot of creativity and creative freedom because you're not stuck in one box, right? Exactly. And even this particular issue, which is also why we we thought it was perfect for us, was although it's all pretty much self-contained in a 24-hour diner. It's uh, there's so much happens in it, and it really does kind of jump from genre to genre. It is ultimately a horror comic, but there's still there's funny things that happen in it. Just straight up psychological thriller stuff. There's yeah, there's definitely comedy in it. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot of different styles, and that just really appealed to us. Now, yeah, that's how we approached it too. You know, there's there's 24 separate scenes that the first time you read it, it's very disconnected and you're not really you don't really understand what's going on almost the first time you read it. So we kind of attacked it that way. You know, we looked at each scene, we want to do this scene in this style and, you know, tried to emulate that or reach that sort of style, I guess. And what kind of style? Well, having uh, <laughs> having the 24 hours, if anyone has read the comic before, it's it goes chronologically hour one, hour two. Mm-hmm. And we sort of tried to approach it as each new hour, we would attempt something different in, in, a, certain, in a different style, in a different way. Um, there was no... We, we really tried to to base everything off the comic, we would look at the story, like the original drawings and figure out how to storyboard, how to pace the scene similar to the way it was done. Uh, one thing that we really both love about it is the fact that although you get little snapshots of each hour, particularly hour one is, is, is long and you kind of feel like you're in that hour for a right, long the time. The first hour, just to set the scene for listeners, 
you are in the head of the waitress mm-hmm. at the diner who is basically uh, talking about how uh, she was a waitress at a diner, but that's not all she is. She's also a writer. And she talks about how she writes about the people in the diner. The happy, happy, small town life. Yeah. Right. Little do they know that she's gathering information. Yeah. <laughs> we could quote the whole thing, I think, at this point. Yeah. Um, so we actually, we, we adapted the original script of Neil Gaiman's script almost wholeheartedly. There's a couple surprises in the film that I think will really uh, shock and uh, impress, hopefully, a lot of Sandman fans. They'll, they'll be kind of amazed, I think. It's, right. it's an extremely faithful adaptation of the of the comic, but there's like a few things thrown in that are, uh, only fans will really appreciate, and, hopefully. And, <laughs> and certain Easter eggs, too, that I think that even Neil Gaiman, when he was writing it, wasn't aware yet of where he was quite going with it. Right. I think he was like 26 at the time. He'd only, I think, I believe that first arc, he sort of pictured it as maybe ending there. He didn't expect it to mo- go on right. from there. I think he said that they were afraid that they were going to get canceled. Yeah. Because it was so different from what had come before in comics. But there's a couple things in 24 Hours that actually does, even though it feels like a standalone issue, it kind of is connected somehow to the greater universe in ways that I don't think he even realized yet. I know kind of what you're alluding to. Like, the big moment, and it's not really a spoiler, is that uh, there's a character in here, the main antagonist in this 24-hour story, is a villain from the wider DC superhero universe. Mm-hmm. Because Sandman, as far as I know, was conceived as like a reimagining of a Jack Kirby DC superhero called Sandman. But Neil Gaiman took it way, way further. It's a completely different character and that sort of thing. But at the time, I believe he he wanted to connect it to the superhero universe because technically Sandman is a superhero in like the broadest sense of the word. As a result, the first couple issues are have characters from like the DC universe. After a while, he sort of branched out and sort of abandoned the continuity of the DC universe almost almost completely. But at this point, I think he was really faithful to having guest appearances. Like John Constantine and the Martian guy, what's his name? Right, right. Yeah, Martian Manhunter. So yeah. all of that is to say is that the main villain in this is uh, John D. Do you want to explain who, who John D is? Well, he's, yeah, he's Dr. Destiny. He's like a washed up, like... At, at this been, point been in the story. He's been locked up in Arkham Asylum for like who knows how long. Yeah, yeah. He's been there to the point where his face just looks like it's melted practically. You know, like he his, hasn't slept, I believe, is the other thing. His teeth just look like, like chewed gum. And yeah. isn't, he's like a Batman villain originally, right? He's at least... I th- he might be a Batman villain. We we didn't l- research too much into his past because even the the, the, the actor story, the actor who played him would be able to tell you all that stuff. Yeah, probably. he he was uh, he was really into it. He did he did a phenomenal job. Wow, casting yeah. the film was a was a big challenge, especially for that role because the he it involved a lot of makeup and uh, it also involved shaving your entire body to do it. And so, Re- wow, really? Yes, really. Well, like we, yeah, he he narrowed his entire he, body. He, yeah, the character. The character, the character undresses throughout the the, the issue, and uh, this guy originally is completely tatted up. He's got he's got so many tattoos. He's got like a gigantic Joker tattoo on his shoulder. His whole back. Um, he has like a whole back piece. Oh, he looks man. completely unrecognizable. 
uh, in real life, if you see him today versus the character he plays in the film, he would he wore special contacts. He had new hair placed on his completely narrowed body. Yeah, because when Dr. We, Destiny we, has like a skullet sort of thing. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. <laughs> and when we met this actor, he... He had a beard. He had like a bit of a you know, curly fro. Yeah. Like. Wow. So how, you guys, how did you see it? Like, obviously, like this guy looks nothing like the character. He, he just how, played how, it so yeah. well. He, yeah. He just really brought it. And he himself is a huge Sandman fan. So he wanted this role. Um, his name is Zach McKendrick. He's he's a fantastic guy and really committed to the part. And he does a lot of theater work and not too much film. But he saw our casting call and he kind of felt like he had to play this role. And we went through, it was the hardest role to cast, most, mm-hmm. most definitely. And it was hard to convince people because we were a low budget production to, hey, would you be willing to shave your, your body? We'll give you a little bit more money, but you know, we, we really strapped for cash as it That's is. That's amazing. So you got into this whole Salmon thing at San Diego, like read the whole thing. What were your impressions of the overall comic when you first, when you first read it? Cause it's kind of epic. It is. It truly is. It, I mean, when I got to the last issue with uh, the the final part where where Sandman is talking to Shakespeare, mm-hmm. and he's saying how he's finished that Shakespeare's finished writing the Tempest, and they're having a discussion in a in I think Dreams uh, table dining room table, and uh, Sandman says something along the lines of you know I'm the you know, I'm the prince of stories, but no one will ever know my story. And the way it was sort of done, it, but you, but we as the audience have been able to see yeah, his story. Yeah, we just finished his story. And it's kind of meta. Exactly. So, it was, it, I just, that really kind of hammered home the whole, the whole series for me. It really felt like, I just, I just felt like I, I had experienced something that was a, new, a completely different other world that I'd uncovered and a world that I could believe in almost. I'm not a particularly religious person, but I could believe in the endless. I could believe in those personifications of ideas. Yeah. Sort of thing. For those people who haven't read Sandman, the endless are um, dreams, brothers and sisters, and they all represent an aspect of the human condition. It's like there's dream, despair, death, destiny, destruction, desire, desire, like, and they all have D names, obviously, but they're, they're a family of siblings and they're basically in charge of those realms in the human experience. And the way that it unfolds too, because it starts off just, you're, you're only familiar with dream. And then I, at the, around the time when, uh, the sound of her wings, I think is when you start like death starts to become like more of a character. I yeah, think you see her kind of here and there. And like originally, the cult that traps him is like a death cult. So they're trying to get his, his sister, and right. It's it's very it's very like a cultist at the beginning. There's lots of cult stuff and really weird like when uh, Nick when uh, Evan introduced you to this type thing, did you like consume it like fully or? Uh, well, he's got all the uh, the Bibles. These like huge books that are like. Like almost inconvenient to read they're so huge you have to sit down at a table to read them like 20 pounds each they're but, ridiculous but the very first one that I ever read was was 24 hours and I like didn't know what it was you know and did you say this is the film I want like this is the film I want to make well, read it I, sort of I just went you know this is an issue that I always felt like oh this would make a fantastic film because it's somewhat self-contained. And it's also kind of doable, right? Because they're in a diner, so it's lower. It's like a lower budget, yes. less less well, fantastical we, we scenes. At, we looked at other effects. issues. Like Men of Good Fortune is a, a brilliant one. Like I think that's like pretty renowned. People love that one, right? right? And we really considered even doing that one, but the production design involved in that, with having to change the different time eras and have all of these extras and, and different costumes of those time eras, it was just like. It seemed impossible. You know? wow. like, I was also concerned, I think, with 
casting Sandman, a, who had to talk. That exactly. was another big thing. Exactly. Is that Sandman doesn't speak in this, so it was so easy to, to personify him well and he, in and a live action space with when he doesn't have to speak. <laughs> and he only appears in the final page panel almost of the comic did and you guys expand his role at all in the film or is it yes in some ways we do in some ways we keep it exactly the same without being too cryptic okay um it's it was really is it's really cool what's what's going to happen mm-hmm. um and i think what also appealed to me about it was just I, what i like about 24 hours is because it's exactly it is a superhero comic but it has nothing to do with Sandman for the most part. It's it's more about these these people that are living their their life with you know happy happy small town life, but there's this darkness under the surface that it starts bubbling up because of Doctor D's abilities with the Dreamstone and all that. And it just appealed to me as a character piece, as an ensemble piece. It felt like we could do something really really fun and and. and work with different types of performances out of people uh, and and sort of ignore what a typical superhero f- fan film might do, which is a lot more special effects based. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that was like another thing. It doesn't lend really itself want... for the low budget stuff that you can, because mm-hmm. you can't really afford special effects and things like that. Right? Yeah. I mean, we, we did do a lot of practical effects on set because as you know, this comic does involve some gore and some, so we actually hired some great guys uh, the, at the, they're called the butcher shop, uh, Carlos Enriquez. He and uh, Aaron Silberberg, Alex, Alex, Alex Silverberg. We hired these guys to help us do some of the the special effects, and it's it definitely it, the the blood and all that stuff. The gore is just uh, pretty disgusting. You've been listening to Speech Bubble. Back after this. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. Go visit them at 6979 Young Street for their games nights. They've got Warhammer, they've got Star Wars miniatures, they've got Dungeons and Dragons, and they have board games nights. Go to HarryT.com for the schedule and enjoy some serious gaming. Welcome back, and now more Speech Bubble. It's a relatively simple story, this issue, 24 hours. Basically, you're in a diner, and... uh, just to give a little bit of context, John D has sort of escaped from Arkham Asylum. He has stolen the Dreamstone from uh, Morpheus Dream because uh, at the beginning of the Sandman comic, Dream's uh, jewels and all his stuff that gives him power is scattered throughout the universe. And uh, John D, who's like the worst person to find it, finds it and he takes it to this diner. And you're in this diner and you're learning about the people in the diner through this through this waitress. And then the story shifts to what D is doing. He's in this diner and he's creepy and, and watching TV and doing crazy things. And then over the course of the comic, things get weirder and weirder and weirder as the power of the Dreamstone and Dr. D's desires uh, have effects on the people inside the diner. Yeah. And that's sort of what's interesting about this film is it sort of starts off slow and is sort of bringing you into the diner and the environment and seeing where okay this is sort of a sleepy small town but if people just stick around for a little bit they start to notice it gets weirder and weirder and uh these people are just trapped with their worst nightmares one of the things i wanted to ask you 
a big reason that this comic issue works is because of the narration, the omnipotent narrator who is not named. It's just somebody telling the story. Do you guys include a narrator in your in your film? Yes, we do. We actually we ha- we got a, a great actor. His name is David John Phillips. He was originally up for the role of Dr. D and he uh he has this great, really, it's a strange voice. It's not a, it's not like a Neil Gaiman British voice or anything. It is, and we did go back and forth on, you know, whose, whose voiceover is this? Who's talking? Is it, is it Bet? Is it like the waitress? Is it Doctor D? And I think we sort of settled on it. It was kind of a manifestation of Doctor D's psyche, but it was someone else entirely. So we had him sort of play it as he's on Doctor D's side, but uh, he is definitely a separate entity. entity. Yeah. Right. And Dream is not narrating this at all. It's a totally separate, omnipotent narrator kind yep. of thing. Well, <sighs> people can assume whatever they want. <laughs> yeah. That's, I think that's why this film is cool and why the issue is good is because it opens up to so much interpretation. Like, and the more, the more you watch it, the, or the more you read it, the more you see it, and the more you, you, you feel like you start to understand. And that's like the series as a whole too, you know, like, just the more you read of it, the more you feel like you're getting this grander picture. And when you finish it, you feel like you have a greater understanding of something. That's awesome. For the longest time, we had um, we had just a temp narration in there for about a, a year into the editing. And when we finally got we got someone to come in and, and do it, it just it, it changed the pacing of it. It changed the certain the feel of the film. It changed yeah. the mood. He really gives it this different, very surreal vibe to it. Sometimes you don't know if. You don't know exactly where what he's saying. He's uh, very creepy. That's awesome. So, I mean, the one thing I wanted to ask you guys, because a lot of the listeners won't know this, but Evan, is it you that has this weird tangential connection to Neil Gaiman? Um, sort of, yes. The the company I work for, I work in in post production, and uh, we the company I work for, uh, they did the dailies for American Gods. Dailies are like the the regular rushes that the editorial team who's assembling and making the the show they get the they get the footage every day from our company. So it was kind of fun. So you guys, you guys assemble it into a thing, into a package that they watch. Uh, we do that. We we upload it for the clients, and okay. then we also create a package that the editors can actually start working with and organizing. I wasn't the main dailies operator on that. I just had to do a couple uh, fixes here and there. But it was really cool seeing what they were doing, seeing that come together. And we had started this movie about a year. Before I ever worked there, it was—it just felt like a strange connection that suddenly, oh, we're, I'm working with Neil Gaiman, but he has no idea who I am while I'm working on a Neil Gaiman production, which, you know, is is. And he doesn't know anything about he that. Doesn't either. know anything about that either. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but uh, it's something that where I'm a lot more directly involved creatively, and uh, I'm really—I can't wait to see his reaction to it. I think he—I hope he's. If we if happy. we got to like talk to Neil Gaiman or like just meet him after this, I feel like the circle, my circle of Sandman, would be complete. <laughs> as cheesy as it is, it'd yeah. be a dream come true. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be awesome. I man. have met Neil Gaiman, and he's one of the most accessible authors. I mean, even if you're not in the same city as him or whatever. You can write into his blog and he will occasionally answer people's questions and things like that. So I could see that if you sent him like a memory stick with your film on it, he would probably watch it and stuff like that. Well, his like it really there's was so many things in the edit that we didn't even think about. 
And Neil Gaiman had thought about these ideas. He, it, he saw this like thing as being a cinematic piece almost because there were just things that came together in the edit that we didn't even think about. And then when they came together in the way that Neil Gaiman probably imagined it, we we were like, this is brilliant. Like there, there's one scene in particular, the, the Adam's family thing. And, oh uh, yeah, because in the comic, the Adams Family theme song is playing mm-hmm. while something crazy and grotesque is yeah. happening. Yeah, in, in the song though, like D has a line where he goes neat, and in the song they snap and go neat, and it just so happened that the shot was the perfect timing for wow. it to come over. I didn't and even know that. So yeah. when when D says neat, it transitions right into the Adams Family song yeah. at the exact moment that they say neat in the song. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. one of those one of those happy acts where we didn't realize it until we were in the editing room and we went, oh, wow, this is actually way better than what we'd even expected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like watching it like so closely, you kind of get to uncover the secrets of Neil Gaiman's process a little bit. Yeah, or just realize or the what a genius he is. Yeah. yeah, even more so after yeah. he really was kind of thinking with a cinematic mind. You because you know you're just you invent the sound in your head when you're reading it, but we had no idea what we were well I feel doing, <laughs> and, and nobody had wa- made, you know people are going to come to that without having seen Adam's Family, and they're probably not going to know until like years later when maybe they're watching an Adam's Family episode and even make that connection. Some people won't even make that connection at all. Yeah. Right? So it's like a we special didn't. thing that people aren't going to know, aren't going to notice until yeah. they have to unpack the story at the level that you guys had to in order to make a film about it, right? Yeah, it was just one of those wonderful surprises. <laughs> I think it shows just how brilliant the the series is. Like it can't it has to be like a TV series where like the I think that things can be added in clearly like there can be things expanded on but the issues are like Oh, there's, a, such there's, great a, there's a feeling, yeah. There's a feeling to the pace of the whole series, you know. So, like the, speaking of a TV the, the, series, the characters that come back and like Puck and Hob and yeah. all those characters and and Rose Walker that you like don't expect to see again. They're important and right. and essential to the end of the series. Even, and even Barbie in uh, yeah. Game of You, I was because mm. that was the first one I read, and then when I read the Doll's House, she's in in that comic, and right. it was like, whoa, this world is so it was, it's perfect for a TV series. So I wanted to mention, yeah, because we talk we're talking into the TV series territory now. Now that American Gods is out and is, you know, critically acclaimed and people are like, whoa, this is like nothing I've ever seen on TV because Amazon is trying to be like the art house streaming service kind of where Netflix is more mainstream. People are talking about the next thing that Brian Fuller, who produces American Gods, American Gods, by the way, is the novel that Neil Gaiman wrote. I've read it. It's, it's, a new, it's awesome. It's, it's amazing. It's one of my favorite books. So people, because of the success of American Gods, people are talking about a Sandman TV series. Well, hopefully we're like the perfect timing then. Yeah, yeah. We'd really hope that Mr. Fuller appreciates our film and considers us uh, our, our effort spiritual and... warriors that could uh, help him create this the Sandman series. Yeah, you should send this because I think this is like your your audition to working on that series. That's sort of how we treated this whole thing. Even though we had, I mean, this is way back when we first started this, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was still attached to do a Sandman film right. and direct, and that fell apart. Then they hired a new guy, and then he also quit because he felt it, it's not a movie, it's a TV series. And even before that, I think Robert Zemeckis was trying to do a Sandman TV series. Oh, or, no, I didn't hear about that. It was Roger, it was one, Roger but... Avery, right? Because before they were doing Beowulf, Roger Avery wanted to do a Sandman thing in like the 90s, I think, too. 
it so, would be such a challenge to do it as a film. Yeah. There's so much. There's so much you would end up missing, and that are just great little details about the world that I feel like it. It really lends itself to a TV series, and you could do it issue by issue. And I think it would be spectacular. I I consider it could be done like it could be the Fantasia of comic books or something because of how it just brings you into these different worlds for one issue and then suddenly you're in a new one the next. And if anyone's seen Hannibal or Pushing Daisies, Brian Fuller is like such a surrealist filmmaker that he could he is one of the few people that could probably do it, right? Him or David Lynch maybe. <laughs> <laughs> That's insane. So, I mean, this is awesome because the, your timing is so perfect. I mean, I would send this film to him. Uh, I've seen the trailer and the trailer gives nothing away. If you've never read it, this comic, you're going to be like, what? What's happening? Because it's just these flashes. I think even of things happening in the movie. <laughs> that's what people are going to feel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it definitely it exists almost purely for the comic book fans. And if you if you're just a regular audience member that have no idea what you're getting yourself into, I would just treat it like you're watching a fever dream or something it's it's just it's weirdly specific and it doesn't make a lot of sense but it and it doesn't have a a, a tight resolution it sort of leaves things open-ended but, like a, like a dream but that was sort of what we wanted we want Amazing. people to feel like i want more of this i want to see more of this and uh i hope we've delivered on that yeah so, i really think our the ending of the original comic like i wanted to know more about that guy after i read the first one so it's like what the, what the heck is going on who's so, this guy like he's a superhero but everybody dies and he just walks over their dead bodies <laughs> like they're nothing like so if if this film is successful what are your hopes for it are you going to expand it are you going to make it into a feature are you going to what do you what do you want to do i think that that'll all be yes it definitely depends on the success um nick and i we funded this completely on our on our own we just we worked whatever jobs it which took. is which is part of why it took so long we needed to make money to pay for the post-production we just couldn't afford and it pay the actors how pay, did you pay uh, the people well, on the set and everything they, they, the actors were incredible they were they were like spiritual warriors in every sense of the word they came out every night we had all night shoots only allowed to get it because we couldn't afford it really any other time was when it was closed so we did like four night shoots and so where, where where's the diner if you know it's what called I mean, ted's restaurant it's, it's in Scarborough. Yeah. Wasn't it uh wasn't it in something you worked on after that? Yeah, yeah, something at my work actually. I saw the the the, the diner like years later and it was I recognized the brick immediately. I knew where they were, which is it was just fun to see. And it looked completely different from what we did with it. Mm. They were doing like a small drama and our film is you know anything but so when did when did you start this film like doing the shooting and stuff like that so we started the pre-production in october of 20 2014 2014 yeah, and then we filmed it in april, april 2015, 2015 yeah. and then it took about um it took us a long time to get the edit together and we also have uh, an animation sequence that's in the film as well and that took a long time to get the animator on board have him do all the work involved with that. The second passes, the third passes. It, it was a very time-consuming process getting the sound done. Um, there was also like there's also little like TV segments throughout the film as well. So I think we literally filmed the last TV segment a year after principal photography was already done. Wow. So and those those we felt like those TV sequences were really important because it opens up the idea that. 
this is a self-contained story, but the madness and the you know the animosity or whatever that's going on inside this diner is like everywhere. Yes. It's spreading. Yeah, it's happening global. D's influence, yeah. yes, is spreading everywhere. Yeah. He's using the the TV as just a way of. And I think that out. was the purpose of including the TVs in the comic was to show you that it's it's all over the world. It's like a pandemic of craziness. So now that you now that the film is done, what are your overall feelings about it? Like, do you feel like you were a little too ambitious all this work, or what do you, what do you think about what you've done? Um, well, every film has its challenges and is, it's never, it's never perfect where there's always things we could have done better, things we could have done better on set, things we could have done better, effects we could have pulled off even, even better if we had more time. But, you know, life goes on. We've been working on this for two and a half years and we're ready for the next step. And we think it's in a great enough place that it's... Mm -hmm. It's really going to blow people's minds, I think. So then what do you think the next step is? Do you think this one screening is going to go viral and people are going to want to see well, it more? The, the screening, I feel like, is more for us. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, and it's for, like, fans of Toronto. Like, to see, the, to see this film with an audience is just going to be really fun because it's just such a, It's one of those movies that's really fun to watch tonight it's because it's so wild. And like, the first time I found out about what you guys do, I literally saw the poster with Salmon on it, like, in like the streets of Toronto. I think it was like Spadina and King actually. And I was like, what? Who, somebody's doing something with Sandman? <laughs> yeah. what, what are they like? like? At first, at first I thought they were making like a Sandman feature film. And then I was like, what like wh I didn't hear about a movie of that what the fuck <laughs> well, it's, it's not just a short film either it's yeah. like it's 35 minutes like it's a decent thing right, like, yeah. people it's are a, coming out to see a 10 minute film for free it's, but I, it's like it's an experience but it's I like a TV yeah. episode yeah. but I didn't even realize that it was like a homemade thing like I thought it was like somebody was doing pre-announcements for like a movie that was coming out because we have awesome posters <laughs> I, and, I, I know, and, like, and like I was like what and then and then I figured out that it was like a one-time screening fan film. And I'm like, I can't believe somebody's doing a Sandman thing. I have to go to this. I don't know when it is. And then a week later, you guys messaged me. Colton messaged me. Your friend who who's mm -hmm. uh, a friend of mine. He's an artist on Toronto Comics Anthology Story that I did. Uh, he messaged me at the exact same moment that I got an email from you guys. And I'm so glad we're sitting in this room. Um, yeah, thanks again for yeah, having us. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And Colton worked on the film as well. He helped us in a million ways. He was on set. He helped us do storyboards for this animation sequence. He helped, he us, helped us design the posters, the posters the post illustrations. illustrations. Ken, we did use Ken Lashley illustration as well for one of them. The one of, of Sandman is Ken's. Wow. And then my friend Evan did all the the graphics and the poster designs. Not this Evan, a different one. It was. We did a lot of pulling favors from our from our mm, pool our of friends, friends yeah. and you know, we we can't thank them enough for for the volunteering and we're fortunate that, that we have such talented friends we have truly really talented people around us to, to help us out that's amazing like i really hope the screening goes well i hope that like sam because it's quite, sort of underground like unless you see the poster you're listening to this podcast you're not going to know that this is happening in toronto but this is happening in toronto people <laughs> Um, where can people go to the screening? When is the screening? We want to get as many people to, out the, okay. Sunday, 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 June 25th at 7 p.m. at the Royal Cinema. Doors at 6.30. First come, first serve, unless you want to reserve a ticket. If enough, if enough people reserve tickets for the 7 p.m. show, then we're going to do an 8 p.m. show. But that's, that's kind of the only reason we're allowing people to reserve how, tickets for the 7 p.m. show is because we just want to gauge how much how many people are actually coming to this How thing. do you reserve tickets? If you go on the Facebook page, and um, so if you search up Sandman 24-hour diner. We should be the first one, uh, or the only one. And 
uh, if you like the page, we'll have lots more posters. Um, we'll have an event. We have an event set up. We've been promoting that online as well. And if uh, you just go to the event page and tell me how many tickets you want, we've still got a couple hundred seats left. So we're able to accommodate some some people. So yeah, if you want to come in and experience something that's truly like a one-time event and it's a labor of love, it's really a passion project. And there's a lot of artistic integrity in this. There's mm. a lot of great, talented people that are involved. And even if you're listening to this on June 25th, get down there. Like, get down there. I don't care if you're listening to this yeah. at, like, at like 6 or like 5.30. Get your shoes on, get dressed, and go to the Royal Cinema for the screening. Some people reserve seats and never show up, so you never know. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It's gonna be cool. Where can people find you online? I want them to be able to follow your future films because if you're gonna be adapting comics, I, I want the next comic that you do to be amazing. First, you can check out the uh, the Vimeo page that we'll have set up for Sandman. Again, if you just go to the Sandman 24-hour diner Facebook page, we'll probably be putting a lot of updates up there about what, we're be, what we'll be doing next, what, uh, what's going to happen with the film, because you know, we're expecting some, some feedback of some kind. Um, there's a couple more surprises along the way. Um, a different version of the film, perhaps, uh, might come out. More posters. More we're going to keep pumping out posters, because they're just so cool. Colt, Colton and Evan are doing such, such cool work and, on them. And we don't really know what we're, what we're going to do next. We, uh, we have a lot of ideas. We've, I mean, we're, we've been collaborating for a couple of years now, and um, I don't see that changing anytime soon. We've, we've both gotten a little itchy to like film something new, but we just like, we, we can't because we just have to finish this thing and then but, we can move on. But if we get enough positive reaction and people want to see more Sandman, we're definitely open to it. We might do some sort of Kickstarter or something like that. So... If you just, yeah, go on the Sandman page, that'll, that'll be a good place to Are find Are you at all concerned that DC or Warner Brothers will send you like a cease and desist or something like that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, but we feel like it's a bit of a gray area. Like we spend so much money and it's just, it's like, we really feel at this point, it's a bit of a fan service. Like fans, we really think fans are the ones who are really going to appreciate the film. And we're not monetizing it in any way. No, it's, well, just, it's just for exhibition. It's just for people to watch and be like, oh, cool. <laughs> like, it's just, we, we wanted to do something cool and we've really felt strongly about this particular story we just felt like it was one that would be fun to tell and i I don't i don't expect warner brothers to immediately jump for a sandman especially that issue because it's very dark Um, it's one of the darkest ones by far i'd say yeah this is like rated r yeah uh, yeah i I wouldn't bring kids to this showing no uh it's gonna give them nightmares for centuries they'll be in therapy for years Uh, but if you really like horror and it, and you love like psychological horror with a bit of a fantasy tinge to it and a superhero tinge, you're going to love this. Thank you guys so much for coming in. Uh, before we go, I just want to thank uh, some people that make this uh, podcast possible. Uh, our producer, Alex Ross, not the comic artist, Alex Ross, of course. But uh, uh, our audio editor, uh, Joseph Yanni, uh, Britt Tice designed our uh, logo. We have Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward doing the voiceover for the podcast. And uh, thanks also to the people that uh, sent us reviews on iTunes, uh, Velociraptor, Renard Bishop, Tyrone McCarthy, uh, Eric Anthony. You guys are amazing. Keep uh, reviewing us on iTunes. And thank you guys so much for coming in. Uh, Thank you. We really I'm a appreciate fan, that. and I really want to go see this right now. I want to be <laughs> on the ground floor. I can't wait for you to see so it. So, yeah, if, if really nobody listens see, to this podcast, and like nobody listens, if nobody listens to this podcast, you'll have one fan in me who wants to go see this for sure. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> it was worth it.
yeah for sure yeah. for sure all right guys uh thank you for coming in and uh, we'll see you next time on speech bubble this has been speech bubble see you in the future friends never sleeps network this has been a never sleeps network production executive produced by alex ross for more information and content visit neversleepsnetwork.com This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula at 6979 Young Street. They sell comics and games to bright and imaginative people like you. So go there for your comics fix and go there for their games nights that happen all week. Check harryt.com for the schedule and tell them Aaron sent you.